Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr. Hannah Preston. I am a renal registrar and co-chair of the College Trainees and Members Committee. And with me today, I have got Dr. Benita Kane, who is a respiratory consultant based in Manchester with a special interest in Aries disease, quality improvement, and also long COVID. And today is one of two episodes discussing long COVID and ME chronic fatigue syndrome. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And I guess just to really set the scene, I just wanted to discuss how you first got interested in long COVID. I presume you initially saw it through your role as a respiratory consultant. Yes. So as a respiratory consultant, I was on the front line of the pandemic right from the start. And the long term sequelae started becoming apparent as we were going through 2020. But my personal interest in it was really sparked from my own experiences of having a daughter with long COVID, but also supporting many colleagues and staff members through having the illness as well. And I guess let's just set this out very early on because there might be some people and potentially quite a lot of people who have very little knowledge and understanding about really what long COVID is and where our thoughts stem from. So I guess what is long COVID and how does long COVID differ or what are the similarities between that and chronic fatigue syndrome? That's a really big question, Anna, and I'll do my best to answer that as succinctly as possible. But when we look back at the history of medicine, post-viral illnesses have always been there, and there were very well-described sequelae from SARS-CoV-1. Now, MECFS, or myalgic encephalomyelitis, forward slash chronic fatigue syndrome has been described for decades and decades. It's a very disabling condition. It's related to a number of different viral and bacterial triggers. And it's something that in the world of medicine, for whatever reason, we are very poorly taught it's very poorly understood. And actually, I've had a real insight now having looked into this a lot more about the plight of the millions of people with ME around the world who have really had very little in terms of research support and any prospects of treatment. So I think the one thing that will come out of long COVID is that we definitely taking post-viral illnesses much more seriously. Long COVID is like any other post-viral condition in that it's disabling, it really impacts on quality of life, and it's poorly understood. Now, the definition of long COVID is somebody who will have ongoing symptoms for three months after the initial infection. You can start considering it after 
four weeks or longer. But at that point, we need to be very careful that we're excluding other conditions because the symptoms by the nature of long COVID are very wide, varied, overlap with lots of other conditions. And it's important that as the first step, we're not missing something else or we're not just putting it down to long COVID. That's generally the agreed definition by who and nice. Excellent. And I completely agree. I think there'll be a lot of medical students, foundation, doctors, registrars, consultants, general public that listen to this. And it's certainly not been something that we've had in our routine curriculum. And I guess a result of SARS-CoV-2 that it's been drawn to our attention and hopefully the understanding, the knowledge and the research will come from that to be able to then subsequently help all the millions of people who have suffered prior to this. So how prevalent is it? That's a really important but difficult question to answer because depending on what study you look at, you'll get wildly varying prevalence rates. But it's generally accepted that one in 10 people after having a SARS-CoV-2 infection will have prolonged symptoms and a prolonged recovery. Now, that's not to say that every single one of those in 12 months or 18 months will still be suffering. But if you're looking at that definition of it's taking a few months to recover, that's generally accepted amongst the long COVID world that's a good estimate of prevalence. And if you think about the number of infections we've had across the world, that is a huge, huge number. And even if a tiny portion of that remain extremely disabled moving forward, it's a very large number of people. Yeah, I think that one in 10 is really striking. And when you think of it, as we said, on a big scale, then it just highlights how frequent it is and therefore how serious we need to be taking this. And I guess, do we know who is at greatest risk of getting a post-viral syndrome? This has not been studied in enough detail for me to say these are the factors which predispose people. But from my own clinical experience, I look after around about 200 people now at this stage with long COVID, I see definite patterns emerging. So I have a group of people who definitely had a phenotype of allergic disease, possibly severe irritable bowel, hay fever, asthma, eczema who go on to develop long COVID. There's definitely a group of patients who are perhaps metabolically unhealthy to start with, with vascular disease, who then go on to develop long COVID. Another signal in my patients is a history of Epstein-Barr infection. Often if you dig deep enough, they'll say, oh yeah, I did have glandular fever when I was 16 and I was off school for six months or a year. Those are the sort of biggest risk factors I see. But I do also see a pattern where people were perhaps already in a fight or flight response, sympathetic overdrive. They were working really hard, burning the candle at both ends, or they'd had some significant trauma. So their autonomic nervous system was turned off at high level and then they got ill with the virus and that was just flawed them and they've not recovered. I think the other thing which definitely makes a difference is the people who push themselves to get back to work and to exercise too early and they've not allowed their bodies to recover have often then developed long COVID symptoms haven't then recovered from fully. And that group might play into the previous one who were burning themselves out to begin with and then that type that don't stop. And I guess there hasn't always been that public health message of if you get this, you need to rest for longer than you think you do. And I remember when I got COVID last year, certainly I had to rest for a significantly longer period of time than I thought. And actually, it was only from previous family experience with someone who has unfortunately suffered with ME-CFS 
that I really took that rest seriously. And I think it paid dividends. It still took me kind of three, four months to feel back to normal and doing activities. But, you know, the outcome could have been much different. And I guess that brings us in nicely to discussing what do we currently know about the pathophysiology and mechanisms of how long COVID develops? We actually know an awful lot about it now and building on the decades of research or being that MECFS is massively under-researched given the scale of the problem. There is decades of research that we can draw on and a lot of what we're seeing in long COVID is mirroring exactly what we've seen in MECFS. So I will say there's some key pathophysiological mechanisms that we do know about. One is we know that long COVID is probably a vascular disease that is characterized by dysfunction of the endothelium or the lining of blood vessels with a failed normal clotting response. And so there's lots of emerging evidence around this regarding endothelial dysfunction, the development of tiny little microclots, which can clog up the capillaries and platelet hyperactivation. So it's kind of three different things that are all interrelated that causes the blood vessel dysfunction at a very small capillary level. And if your capillaries aren't working properly and your blood's sludgy and thick, you're not going to get effective oxygen delivery to the muscles and tissues. And we think that is one of the hallmarks. It may not be the cause, but it's definitely a downstream effect of having long COVID. Secondly, Mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells, which use the oxygen to make ATP and effectively produce the energy in our bodies, there may be mitochondrial dysfunction. And that may be as a result of the poor tissue effusion and hypoxia, but we don't fully understand that. There's definitely a signal around autoimmunity. So a lot of people with long COVID have randomly positive ANA or a positive ALKA. It doesn't quite fit into a pattern of autoimmune disease that we can then label as something we're familiar with, but there's definitely autoantibodies. And the people who have been lucky enough to have the GPCR antibodies, which measured, they're often high. And these are antibodies against things like beta-2 receptor, things that are important in autonomic nervous function regulation. The other theory is around viral persistence. So we definitely know you can measure viral antigen in tissues for hundreds of days after infection, particularly in the gut. And you'll know that part of the surveillance is measuring antigen levels or whatever they measure in the sewage to give an idea of prevalence. It's extremely difficult to prove live replicating virus scientifically. So that hasn't been demonstrated, but the gut is likely to be a very big reservoir but it's been found in every tissue, breast tissue, testicular tissue, in the retina. You can find viral antigen if you look for it. And the gut has a very important interaction with the brain. So you may have heard of the gut-brain axis and leaky gut can then affect, I mean, the gut has its entire own nervous system and nerve supply. With that leaky gut, we can get persistent inflammation in the body that can then drive all of this. And I think a hallmark of all of it is you get autonomic dysfunction. So patients will describe dry eyes, dry mouth, dizziness on standing palpitations. The autonomic nervous system innovates everything. It controls all of our normal bodily functions that are automatic bodily functions. And so it kind of explains the wide range of symptoms we see, because if you're thinking this is a nerve and blood vessel disorder, that is every organ in the body and explains the wide range of symptoms. So that's kind of a lot I've said there in a very short space of time. So I hope that all makes sense. 
It does make sense. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think it fits with a lot of the symptoms that people are describing, which we'll come on to in a minute, and is very different from the, you know, the initial, oh, it's a, it's a respiratory illness only, you know, it only affects, you know, the lungs and your breathing. Actually, it's a kind of multi-systemic inflammatory vascular disorder, which is hopefully where we'll then find more knowledge, understanding, research, treatments, pathways, etc. So we've talked briefly about how there is such a wide range of symptoms that people can have and can vary between individuals and can vary over the course of time for individuals as well. But what are the most common ones that we might see presenting to us? There are up to 250 different symptoms that have been described under every single organ system. But I think the hallmarks of what I see in almost everybody is that they have what we call post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation. So if you think about this as an energy-limiting disorder and people who are healthy might wake up with, let's use the battery analogy, 100% battery. People with low COVID or MECFS might wake up with 20% battery or 30%. And then every single thing they do, right the way from thinking, speaking, getting up, brushing their teeth, will drain that energy. So I describe it a little bit like when your phone's getting old and it's starting to run out of battery and you have to keep plugging it in because it keeps draining really fast. And if they overdo it, it will exacerbate all of their underlying symptoms and they have to do small periods of activity and then long periods of rest where they're recharging their battery. That is almost universal and an important part of the diagnosis. Headaches, dizziness, palpitations, sleep disruption, cognitive dysfunction. I detest the term brain fog because it really underplays the seriousness of the cognitive dysfunction that these patients experience. They can have a new onset of allergies, food intolerances, menstrual disorders are very common as well in men, erectile dysfunction. And that's just to name a few. I mean, I could go on and on and on to every organ system. But what I would say, it's, it's an extremely disabling condition for some people. And for other people, it's just robbed them of the things they used to be able to love to do. So I've got lots of colleagues who were very fit. They were the athletes. They would do a marathon a couple of times a year. And they can work, they can function, they can do everything to get through life. But they can't do that anymore. All the way from that to I've got people who are bed bound in dark room with severe light and sound intolerance, complete gastroparesis, NG fed, the scale of what we see is massive all the way from being a bit affected to completely and utterly debilitated. It's also apparent that within one person, you can have some days where you have you know, you've rested enough and you've built up that reserve and your batteries recharged enough for you to do your daily active life, do the tasks that you need to do to get through the day. You might be able to work and then something else gives you a small hit and then that reserve and that battery just completely drains and you almost, you have to start from scratch and rest again or it sets you back further than you were before. So within an individual, there's a lot of variation. So people might have kind of per se good days and then and then bad days. And it's not necessarily a, a constant or 
they're not on a gradual recovery or a gradual decline. It's wildly dramatic and unpredictable for the person, which I think is also extremely hard. Yes, there's nothing linear about this disease whatsoever. And I think one of the really cruel things about post-exertional malaise is that it can accumulate. So people can have a few really good days and and they go, oh gosh, I feel better. I feel back to normal. And then then within 48 hours, they've put themselves in bed for a week. And we call that the boom and bust cycle. They feel better, they do more, they push it, and then they crash. And Unless people are coached in this and really understand it, they will continue to do that. And the danger and the risk of that is a bad crash can lead to a worsening of the baseline. And so it has to be managed very, very carefully with the right advice. And often people are getting the wrong advice. They're being told to get back to the gym and, oh, you just need to get yourself out there and push yourself and walk. And people listen to that because we've had that drummed into us our whole lives, you know, 10,000 steps a day is good. That's what we should be aiming for. This is the one condition where I'd say that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And you have to listen to your body and you have to pace. Yeah, definitely. And that brings us on really nicely to one of my other questions that I was going to talk about is what are the common myths that need to be busted? Because as you said, things like you're just unfit, you need to do this kind of gradual return to exercise, which we know is completely the wrong advice to be given to patients and actually doing more, especially in that early phase, can be so harmful. What are the common myths that were previously there, probably from a lack of understanding more than anything else, that actually we need to say, no, this is not right and validate for the patient's uh, okay, I don't know where to start with this one because there's so much I could say here. There's so many myths that need busting. But one really important one for the people listening is that normal tests do not mean there is nothing wrong with the patient. It means we are not doing the right tests because when patients do have access to the right tests, they always show abnormalities. So our standard NHS tests like CTPAs and ECGs and standard blood tests often come back completely normal. That does not mean there is not microcapillary issues ongoing underneath. I also see a lot of tests interpreted in the context of what we were doing the tests for before the pandemic. For example, 24-hour ECG monitoring often will come back as this is normal because they haven't seen an arrhythmia on that. But actually, when you look at that, often they'll have spikes in heart rate up to 150, 160. And when you talk to the patients, say, what did you do that 24 hours that, that was being measured? They oh, I didn't do anything. I probably got up and made a couple of meals. And this might have been someone who was running marathons a year ago. So that's grossly abnormal for that patient, but it's been reported as normal and they're being told there's nothing wrong with them. What's very common in that kind of dysautonomia category is that a lot of patients have got orthostatic intolerance. You stand them up and you lean them against the wall for 10 minutes and their heart rate spikes. May not spike up to the 30 of what the historical cutoff for POTS is, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, but it's abnormal for the patient. So I think one piece of advice I would really give is look at the tests in the context of the person in front of you. Don't give it to someone else to interpret and tell you it's normal. So that's really, really important for the doctors and healthcare professionals listening. Another myth is that this is all anxiety. So people are a bit tachycardic, they get told they're anxious. And they will say, I'm not anxious. Oh, I'm a bit worried because I'm not well. And a lot of the patients will admit if they're anxious, they say, I am anxious, but this is different. <laughs> or I've had anxiety in the past, but this is different. The feeling of anxiety could be part of a sympathetic overdrive because people get adrenaline surges. 
as part of that. So please don't dismiss people's symptoms as anxiety because we can't explain them. That would be another very important thing to highlight. The fact you can exercise yourself better is a big myth that we've touched on already and I won't dwell on that one, but exercise can be extremely harmful for these patients, particularly graded exercise, which is all about building from one baseline and slowly increasing and increasing and increasing. Whilst that might be possible for some people, in other people, you actually have to pull back on exercise to remain within what we call an energy envelope. So you're not overdoing it and not causing those crashes. And I think the final myth is there's nothing we can do. It's a new disease. We can't treat this. I'm going to really challenge that strongly because COVID now has more than 380,000 published papers on it. And long COVID is COVID. It is an extension of the initial infection. I think for long COVID, there are over 90,000 publications as well. We understand a lot about the underlying pathological pathophysiological mechanisms. And if you understand that, you take a good history, do a good clinical examination of patients, lots of things we can do for them. I've had people's lives who've been transformed by giving them a beta blocker because they've got an inappropriate tachycardia and exercise and treating POTS-like symptoms. People's lives transformed with antihistamines. I forgot to mention mast cell activation as a really important underlying pathology when I talked about the pathology, but don't have time to talk about that in detail, but allergic responses and mast cells might be driving symptoms in lots of different organs. Things like HRT can really help women because the virus we think is pushing women into perimenopause earlier. So there's lots and lots of things you can do on top of the pacing and the advice about lifestyle management but it does require a knowledge of the condition and an in-depth understanding to be able to make those decisions and I think that's the gap is that we don't have that at the moment we are stuck with guidelines which forgive me for saying are quite outdated because the pace of the research has been phenomenal in the last few years. Thank you that's been fascinating and hopefully a real eye-opener for the first episode for our listeners to understand a bit about where this has initially come from, how many people might be at risk, who might be at risk of getting this, what our current knowledge is but as you said it's you know, it's growing as we speak, thinking about the common symptoms that patients might present with either in primary or secondary care and remembering that these are vast and wide. And then also acknowledging the impact that these symptoms have on people's lives. And as you said, asking about and reflecting what they were doing before and what they're able to do or unable to do now because people's comparators will all be different and what's limiting for someone might not be limiting for someone else given the array of symptoms and severity and then talking about common myths so thank you so much i think that's been a really useful episode and i think we will wrap it up there and leave the listeners in suspense for episode two where we're going to dive more into what we can do for someone that presents with long covid on a medical tape for someone that we suspect has got long covid how do we look after them in hospital talk more about tests and current treatments and current and emerging research. So thank you very much, Benita, for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will really value this podcast. So thank you.